Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. Welcome, David Moser, guest or co-host, back on the show. Uh, how are you doing, David? On this lovely Beijing Friday evening. Indeed, very nice. I'm looking forward to going out after this. Are you to playing? En- are to you enjoy playing jazz tonight? Yes, blues, you are. Right. At where? Uh, is this an advertisement or what? Well, I'm just uh, interrogating CD, our guest. At the CD Cafe. At the CD Cafe. Yes. Very CD. Yes. Um, <laughs> we are delighted today to welcome back uh, Gadi Epstein, Beijing correspondent for The Economist, who is a uh, Seneca stalwart and veteran, but hasn't been on the show I for a while. It, it's, con- it's contractually obligated to use the word stalwart. Stalwart. We have to whenever we have you on the show. <laughs> welcome, Gadi. <laughs> I'm glad that, that you've, you paid attention to that in the writer. Yes. No, <laughs> yeah. We're very, uh, very uh, fussy about uh, yeah. obeying uh, to the letter. But I didn't uh, see any red M&Ms out there in the waiting room. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there are some cocaine and models in, yeah. the, in the green room. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, it's waiting for you at the, end of the end of the show. Um, so... So enough of the nonsense. Let's get into the the subject. We have two today, both based on things that Gadi has been writing for the Economist. I believe you mean my beautiful reportage. Your beautiful reportage. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the big one, which is Hong Kong. Yes. Uh, and it's uh, now nearly the end of July. Uh, the beginning of this month, uh, July one, was the anniversary of the handover to China. Uh, and a bunch of things happened in Hong Kong. Gadi, would you like to kind of give us a, a, a breakdown of, of the events in Hong Kong over the past two months? Indeed. Uh, well, it's been a busy couple months. Uh, in June, actually, events were emanating from Beijing. China put out this white paper. The State Council put out a white paper in which it basically told Hong Kong, you're autonomous as long as we want you to be and allow you to be. Uh, your judges should be patriotic. Um, you know, your leader should love Hong Kong. It's some some stuff. Love re- China. Right? Should, should love. Sorry, should yeah. love China and Hong Kong. But that's the same thing, Jeremy. I <laughs> go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and this actually set off quite a bit. It was kind of. Uh, it was in the face of the Occupy Central movement in Hong Kong, which is this uh, movement that sort of modeled on Occupy Wall Street, that intends to uh, kind of block um, all sorts of business in downtown Hong Kong if they don't get an election reform plan in Hong Kong that they like. And what they want is a plan by which they would really be allowed to elect, uh, to truly elect democratically um, a leader for Hong Kong, whereas the current process is not democratic. And so why, why did the uh, Chinese government, why did the Communist Party decide to put out this white paper at this time? Right. So there's a lot of debate about this. There's some people who think that maybe they, they would sort of regret having, having done it now and would have taken it back given the response. I'm not so sure about that. I think they wanted to make it clear, kind of draw a bold line um, under what they, you know, what they believe to be, what should be the correct policy on Hong Kong. Worried that maybe it was slipping away from them and uh, politically the, the the local situation. They're very mindful of uh, 11 years ago uh, when uh, there was a security law proposed mm-hmm. for Hong Kong, article called Article 23 under under Article 23 um, that uh, would have been. Uh, it was very unpopular. There were hundreds of thousands of people who protested that July 1st. It was, uh, at that time, the biggest protest uh, since the handover. Um, and it remained so until this month. And there was since, a big movement in 2012 for this anti-patriotic uh, education. Right. So that was a, that was a big, um, there, there was a big reaction in Hong Kong then as well. Mm-hmm. And China has basically become more aggressive. Mainland China has become more aggressive towards Hong Kong ever since Article 23. And uh, they, their approach has been to put pressure on businesses in Hong Kong, business leaders to toe the line. 
uh, to put pressure on newspapers, as I wrote about more recently. And uh, it's been very effective, I think. And I think they may have overreached here. Um, uh, it's some people's view they've overreached with this white paper. Um, but on the other hand, uh, this is what they believe. And they, they, they're not going to buckle to democracy protesters in Hong Kong. So what happened after the white paper came out? So there was a pretty uh, widespread angry reaction. Uh, it energized the democracy movement. Uh, Occupy Central had an online poll uh, uh, just after that uh, where they asked people for their um, opinions on what sort of electoral reform plan Hong Kong should have. And a very surprisingly high number of people participated in that, nearly 800,000 people. Uh, you know, Hong Kong only has 3.5 million registered voters. Uh, so that was uh, a substantial response. Judge, judge, uh, lawyers and uh, solicitors in Hong Kong, members of the bar, marched. Um, uh, more than 1,000 of them uh, held a silent march, which I was at um, on uh, the Friday before July 1st. Um, in protest of the white paper. This is unusual level of political activity for solicitors in Hong Kong. So it really, it really energized some people. And students already energized previously, especially with the patriotic education movement that you talked about, or proposals that you talked about, remain energized. And that showed on July 1st, when they had the annual uh, March for Democracy. And this one was really a, a, a referendum on not just the white paper, but on, on C.Y. Leung, the, um, the chief executive of Hong Kong, uh, whose nickname is 600, 689 for the number of people who actually voted him into office, uh, which, is his, which is his bare majority of the electors, the 1,200 electors. The George W. Bush um, of Hong Kong. Of, uh, the 1,200 electors of a Beijing-stacked committee, pro-Beijing committee, that elects the Hong Kong chief executive and nominates the candidates. That so, sums I mean, it up. these people are motivated, but how, I mean, how big is this group of people? Uh, you know, I, I said, in fact, the last podcast, uh, Kaiser asked me, because I'd been in Hong Kong for a, f a few days, and a friend of mine, Chris Horton, had said to me, well, yeah, everybody's protesting on July 1 because it's a holiday, but this being Hong Kong, when they have to go to work, they're all going to just be obedient and go to work. Um, mm. I mean, do you get the sense that there's a genuine commitment to a, a, a type of politicization that we've just never seen in Hong Kong? Is this a new I, thing? I do believe there's more politicized. There's a couple different things going on here. There is a generation gap. Younger people are more uh, into this movement than older people who are more worried about screwing up things in Hong Kong. But on the other hand, older people have already got theirs. There is also this whole wealth inequality issue that's a global issue. It's also a Hong Kong issue. And young people uh, are, I think, worried about not getting theirs in this economy. Uh, and, you know, there's high housing prices, which is influenced by the main influx of mainland investors. There's a bunch of millionaires in Hong Kong, and they're not part of that economy in Hong Kong. I, I was, that's what I was going to ask about. Uh, so I'm glad you, you brought up this Occupy. It's Actually, it was odd. Was this tacked on? It was Occupy Central with Love and Peace? That's the formal name. It's, it sounds like a, co a combination of yeah. Occupy Wall Street and Woodstock. Right. But... Uh, I get the feeling that this that the you know the politicization was already on a very hair trigger and that this and that this was my question was was this mere, mostly in reaction to the white paper or was it kind of a confluence of things that the white paper was a trigger for something that was already there I think the white paper helped helped kind of get the vote out as it were literally with this online referendum and also uh, in terms of getting people out on the streets uh, a number of people were talking about it and you know I I was I spent several hours with the protesters many of them were young, but there were some old people, including I interviewed an old guy who had, was going for his very first march hmm. and said he was doing it for his children and his grandchildren. And I think this is a sense of existential kind of dread about mm -hmm. Hong Kong. 
it's not just the white paper, of course. I mean, what's happening is we're, we're, we're coming up on deadlines. Mm. Uh, uh, China has said that by 2017, uh, they will, you know, Hong Kong will essentially elect its chief executive. The thing is, by popular vote, the thing is, how do you choose the candidates? Uh, right now, that process is controlled by Beijing, and they want to re- they want to keep it under their control. And they have some vet- vetted candidates, uh, right. vetted by Beijing, and they want they want freedom to choose their own candidates. Uh, right, and, uh, and people in Hong Kong would like to be able to elect just about anybody, uh, nominate just about anybody. Um, and there's a range of options from having a public nomination for candidates, which Beijing has completely ruled out, uh, but or to having uh, and which the basic law doesn't call for. Hong Kong's basic law by which they are governed. But uh, in between, there are other options that would allow for civic, other civic types of candidates to come forward and run, and Beijing doesn't want those options either. And that's where we now have the situation where Occupy Central is threatening to, to, um, to do demonstrations and block traffic downtown. And then there's an anti-Occupy Central movement which says that they're going to ruin Hong Kong. They have a, quite a dramatic video uh, on YouTube. Yeah, video. absolutely it, ridiculous. It, occupy, it will kill the Hong zombies, Kong. The zombies. And it's actually a very well done video if you were to be sympathetic with what they're saying. You know, showing the kind of these graphics of how much of Hong Kong would be shut down within 10 minutes, within 20 minutes. Like a zombie uh, right. uh, movie showing the infection this, spreading. Is that, yeah, yeah. Is, that, is that a propaganda piece by the United Front? Jeremy and I were talking about this be- before the show. I'm but, not sure the origins of that particular video, uh, the real origins, but yeah. the United Front is active in Hong Kong. Right. Um, and uh, the liaison office in, is very active in Hong Kong. And that is a difference from 2003, from before right. July 1, 2003, before right. Article 23. Right. The liaison office has become steadily more involved. That's especially true under, under this chief, chief executive. Can, can we just explain those two things? What is the United Front and what, what yeah. is the liaison office? Yeah. Do you want to take the United Front? Well, actually, Jeremy is just editing uh, a piece for that for the, the next China story. So maybe Jeremy is the expert on that. But I mean... I, I was likening it to the Koch brothers, uh, you know, putting out these uh, front ads for, you know, Americans for a patriotic environment or whatever the hell it is. And they're, you know, so, uh, but Jeremy, maybe you could, you know, expound on what the United Front is. Well, sure. I mean, it, uh, United Front has been a, a strategy of the Communist Party since the early 1920s um, when they had members joining the Kuomintang, the KMT, in order to um, basically take it over infiltrate it and destroy it or occupy it from within. Um, But since 1949, it has been a a party department, I think, that Mm -hmm. has been responsible for uh, getting within China the so-called democratic parties and the non-communist party political actors in line behind the communist party's vision. And then outside of China, getting overseas Chinese, uh, Chinese friendship organizations, and pretty much anyone relevant to to China's image and cause in the world to uh, align behind basically the Communist Party idea of how the world looks. Um, so as far as we know, the United Front people are behind, uh, you know, student protests against, you know, Dalai Lama or whatever in, in, in foreign capitals and uh, organization of, of pro-Communist Party uh, uh, activities in other countries and territories, it's, a, it's an astro, astroturf with Chinese characteristics. It is exactly, yeah. and they're very act. And in, in, in Hong Kong, they're not open about uh, everything they're doing, but they're definitely involved. And everybody thinks, everybody sees them everywhere, whether or not they're actually there. Right. Uh, but they see the hand of, of right. the United Front. The United Front. And what about the liaison? Um, well, similarly, the li- people always see the influence of the liaison office, which is probably maybe exaggerated because everybody thinks that they hold complete sway over the chief executive's office in Hong Kong. 
But technically, but what is it? The liaison office. It's, it's the it's Beijing's representative in Hong Kong. So it's almost like Beijing's official representative not, in Hong Kong. We couldn't call it they embassy. Used to, the liaison might. the liaison never used to actually go out and, and to public functions in Hong Kong and, and mingle with the Hong Kong elite. Now openly do. Now they do. Yeah. Um, they. Uh, when uh, the newspaper, so part of the, I just wrote this week or last week about freedom of the press in Hong Kong. Uh, and one of the issues was uh, the banks pulling, a couple of major banks pulling ads from Apple Daily. Uh, Apple Daily being the kind of very openly pro-democracy newspaper of Hong Kong and also a very widely read popular daily. They've had advertising pressures for many years. With a, uh, we should mention Jimmy Lai, I guess, the right. founder and chief executive of Apple Daily Next right. Media. Right, Jimmy Lai, whose uh, whose home, uh, there was a, a, a car, a stolen car, was like rammed into a gate of his home last year, and left behind were a machete and a and a hatchet. So he's been under under sort of figurative threat and and real threat uh, for for running this very strident newspaper. Uh, and so now these ads have been pulled. Standard Chartered no longer advertises in in Apple Daily, uh, HSBC, Hang Seng, uh, no longer advertise and. What uh, people at Apple Daily said is that uh, they were told by representatives of the banks that the liaison office had essentially instructed or requested them to do this. Not too shocking to hear that that was that's a possibility, but um, but they're saying that you know they heard it directly. So it's interesting. This, it should be obvious by now, but just make, maybe mention explicitly that, that that this the triggering the the white paper triggering you know the sentiment. Uh, I've been to Hong Kong too in the last few years for conferences and things and i i think it's true that you know the hong kong people if you talk to them there's a there is a sense of vague uh kafka-esque anxiety about these creeping intrusions Uh, in academia they're very sensitive to this they feel it but none of it is is overt it's all like you know creepy figures uh, you know putting exerting influence at the periphery right uh obviously press freedoms uh a friend of ours, reporter, uh, he used to work for the South China Morning Post, talked about this quite a while before he was dismissed, and so on and so forth. So, right. I mean, uh, just to emphasize, that's why I asked the question. It seems like that the China, that Hong Kong has been on the edge for many years. It's a long-term trend. Yeah. Uh, but I do think the 2003 was a pivot point in, in China's strategy towards Hong Kong. But the long-term ends were going to end up being essentially the same, I think, Uh you know, China was not going to allow a popular election of a chief executive whenever the deadline was. And now that it, that this deadline of 2017 is approaching, and which was pushed back from years ago, mm. from like 2007, um, now that it's really approaching and there's an election reform plan to be tabled um, in Hong Kong, now that's when, why we have this potential for, for disruptive protests. The July 1st protest was sort of a one-off, um, but it's maybe a dry run for for much more significant protests to come later this can, summer. Can I ask uh, just, and just to say, this yeah. this one on uh, this year was the largest, as far as anyone can tell, since 2003. Um, the the organizers' estimate was that it was 510,000, uh, which happens to be just 10,000 more than the estimate from 2003. But wow. regardless, it was clearly a huge turnout. Um, so there is a lot of energy for uh, for democracy. So the, uh, the people, some of them, you know, uh, ridiculous uh, people like the Global Times uh, and some perhaps more reasonable who've casted doubt on these numbers, both <clears throat> the numbers who voted came out in for the, the march or- unofficial referendum and the, the numbers of people who came out for the demonstration on July 1. What do you make of that? I mean, you know, well, the, looking at the numbers, where would you I sit? Don't, I assume that it's slightly possible on the referendum to have 
to have jiggered it to have multiple. But how many people are going to really be uh, trying to vote multiple times in an exactly. online referendum? I would say that that's probably just a bit of noise. But uh, you are an imperialist, so you would say that. Yeah, but, and the referendum also yeah. had was subject of a massive denial of service attacks, um, which uh, allegedly were coming from you know pro mainland. Uh, computers <laughs> i think computers can be pro mainland um, <laughs> and then on the march actually on the march i have it's it, it, we you know who can really estimate these kinds of crowds i think it, it was i think everybody agrees even i think the police would agree that the overall number was into the hundreds of thousands um i think their official estimate was that there was ninety-eight thousand five hundred at a, at a peak moment which it, in itself is kind of a weird uh, kind of estimate but and they may have revised that since. I haven't seen whether the police came out with a new number. But uh, but I think everybody agrees. It was a huge number of people. It was a shitload of people. Yeah. And how do you feel about the future? I mean, how real is this confrontation going to get? Um, well, considering that China has its bottom line uh, and Occupy Central seems to have its bottom line, uh, I think it will depend a lot on what happens with the public's sympathy or or not towards the disruptions that Occupy Central will cause. I, th- I assume these protests will happen at some point. I don't know whether it'll be delayed and you know, w- you know whether the, the, the moment of truth will come later. Um, that's quite possible. Can I ask you a simple historical question? This puzzled me a little bit. When, 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 when Hong Kong reverted back to the mainland in 97, one of the things we heard from you know, eminent you know, experts was that uh, this one, uh, one country, two systems thing that was going to be well adhered to or, you know, Beijing was going to try to stand by it because it was going to be the model for the big prize, which is Taiwan. Taiwan yeah. Has that just gone out the window now? Or, or are, we, are, they so, are they so happy with Ma Ying-jeou that they no longer care about even pretending to make Hong Kong the model for the, the, the reverting of Taiwan back to the mainland? What's going on? It's understand. a great question. It doesn't seem to, I mean, they, I, I, it's hard to say what's going on inside the minds of, of their leaders, of the, of the leaders. They, they seem to have, still have this approach to, towards Taiwan that's quite confident talking about how yeah. we want to preserve your your social system uh you know and kind of these phrases that are, are meant to right. meant to reassure but don't to many taiwanese do you think and, there's just so many billions pumping back and forth between taiwan and the mainland that they don't care anymore even about making a pretense or i mean it seems like a lot of the problem has been solved already i feel like the, i mean from their view my sense is that if they were to let hong kong go uh they wouldn't they, they, then it would be extremely politically uh, perilous here to push for some sort of deal with Taiwan, uh-huh. right? Taiwan would want the Hong Kong terms, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Um, if they were to let Hong Kong to have a real democrat, democratic election, so maybe that that alternative scenario is completely unappealing to them. They want it all. Hmm. They want it their way. Hmm. Doesn't sound uh, very likely. Well, uh, not on Taiwan's front, but in Hong Kong, they're. They're pretty much in charge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, Taiwan. Um, all right. So uh, just before we go on to the next topic of suicide, um, on Hong Kong, uh, one of the stories you did recently was uh, on on press freedom. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, the, the picture we get, uh, and you've already alluded to it, is that it, things are tightening and it's becoming a, a much less free environment. Right. Could you talk a bit more about that? You know, wh- what else is, is happening? Right. When I talk, I talk with journalists in Hong Kong, their, their sense was that, uh, I mean, this is a very long-term trend. So even before the handover, people were starting to notice newspapers sort of becoming more uh, measured in their tone about certain topics. More stoogy, um, one could say. More stoogy. 
that includes June 4th, you know, mm-hmm. talking about, uh, which is a, you know, a really interesting kind of uh, issue to measure in Hong Kong because there's the passions are there. Uh, the press has to cover that issue. They have to cover the anniversary every year of Tiananmen. Um, but the way they do it, I think, has subtly changed over the years. Um, and, but that's, this started a very long time ago. So it went from utter sympathy for democracy protesters and it's a massacre and all this stuff to just kind of more flatly describing the anniversary. Um, similar, similarly, I think in the early 90s or earlier, um, you would have seen more discussion of Taiwan independence in the Hong Kong press at least op-eds or whatever, and you see almost none of that now. Uh, so on subtle kind of things that you would think would be important to the heart of Hong Kong, um, what you see is the press just doing less, uh, o- you know, overt antagonizing of Beijing. It's pretty subtle. I mean, I would think uh, they still cover issues like human rights, but are they going to do a whole expose on repression of Uyghurs? That's maybe, you know, you're not going to see as much of that. Uh, or Tibet. Um, so it's, it's uh, self-censorship uh, that's on the rise, mm. plus overt pressure on mainland editors. I'm uh, sorry, uh, on Hong Kong uh, newspaper editors. Uh, and then overt pressure with advertisers and businesses um, who do... Be, the who complicit do be, caving of, right? of, the, of the mercantile sector. Um, <laughs> and I would... And I mean, I think the exception has been Apple Daily from the beginning, from, from when they started in 1995. Uh, but I, f- I feel like they've lost some, um, some, ban- some brothers. Um, and, you know, I think the coverage is not quite as aggressive in places like Ming Pao, um, uh, Tsingtao Daily. I mean, there's, a, there, there's a places that might have been more interesting a decade ago um, are more anodyne now. They still have to cover the news of the day, cover the protests or, or what have you. But they don't necessarily go the extra mile the or do, do the extra and, investigations. And, right. Yeah. You know. There's even pressure on the free papers, you know, the, which there's a few free tabloid papers. Um, and one of the newspaper editors was talking about, adver- he, he got advertising, advertisers pulling out. And that was after he had been attacked by thugs in his car. People mm-hmm. beat, beat, the, uh, beat in the windshield of his car, and then he, he sped away. Um, these kind of triad-style attacks, which includes the attack on the Ming Pao, the former Ming Pao editor, right. this guy named Kevin Lau, who was sacked earlier this year. Uh, very controversial. People thought it was a pro-Manland move to sack him and remove him. Now, Ming Pao had also participated with this uh, ICIJ, the uh, investigative journalists who looked at uh, the international consortium that looked at um, the financial links of Chinese... Offshore holdings offshore of holdings. Citizens. And Ming Pao had cooperated with that mm. um, under Kevin Lau's leadership. Um, and I think that, that that may have upset... You know, it's all speculation. We don't know exactly, you know, what's behind all of these decisions. Um some of them maybe just, you know, personality disagreements, but uh, they all seem to resolve towards having more uh, people who are sympathetic to the mainland running these newspapers or in editing positions, and I think that inc- that includes the SCMP, the South China Morning Post, the sort of gold standard of the English language uh, publications. Right. <laughs> okay. Good. So the South China Morning Post, uh, you heard that. Before we leave the subject of Hong Kong, one last thing. <clears throat> Your newspaper, The Economist, uh, ran a leader mm-hmm. basically telling the leader, the, the, the political the establishment of UK to stop kowtowing to the commies and uh, stand up for decency and human rights. Is that right? That's right. It's basically telling the UK to have some backbone. I believe the headline was, I know the headline was, no panderers, please. This issue is black and white. 
Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty clever. The economist department of puns really went <laughs> overtime on that one. Um, yeah. That's great. Uh, this was something that I've been talking with folks in London about. Uh, it's like, you know, this is an interesting issue. It's like, UK has, uh, as far as people in Hong Kong are concerned, democracy activists, uh, UK has abandoned them. And uh, Hong Kong was handed back to China under an international agreement, under an agreement with the UK. Um, and they have a, it could be argued, they have a, a special responsibility to Hong Kong that China abide by the one country, two systems for 50 years. Um, and allow Hong Kong to develop these in democratic institutions rather than uh, restrain them. But what can they do besides rent? Well, they could stand up. Uh, I think it has to be rhetorical. Yeah. They, I mean, uh, uh, meanwhile, instead of doing that, they sign trade agreements and very friendly and bring in Li Keqiang to meet the queen. Um, <laughs> but what they don't do is they don't say, in exchange for you come and visit us. I mean, Hong Kong's not on the table as part of those discussions. You know, well, why don't you do this in Hong Kong? That, that is not on the table. I, th I think Hong Kong's a victim of this gradualism and the fact that there, there hasn't been any egregious violation that, gets, that, that would even make sense on the worldwide media stage where people don't really quite understand uh, Hong Kong politics, which are very esoteric. Right. And there's also a problematic aspect of Chinese uh, identity that, you know, uh, there's this Bantu Pai. Right. And it's a little like Taiwan, although Taiwan is, is, I guess Taiwan's way off the radar now, but I mean, Hong Kong. So, I mean, th th this is, this happens. There's not any international outrage. No. And what's it. interesting, it's a microcosm. To me, it's a microcosm of, of, of the international community's utter reluctance to ever confront China in any meaningful way mm -hmm. on any human rights issue these days. Uh, it's all about commerce first. It's, you know, it's the world we live in today, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And you can put pressure on China in certain ways. It just, it takes some creative thinking. And it also takes a willingness to suffer some consequences in the short term. Uh, Which uh, Britain, as the Global Times point out, a small country of interest only for education and tourism. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. The Global <laughs> Times, not me. I think we should move on to the next topic. <laughs> okay, let's, let's move on to the next topic, a very cheerful topic, uh, suicide. So we're, we're looking at two articles, Gadi. It is sort of a cheerful topic when you look at the, uh, actually, what, that's, what the numbers there, are. There's some, there's some good cheer. So should we start with... Um, you started looking into official suicides, right? Okay, yeah. And then you also got interested in the general suicide rate in Chinese population. W which one should we start with? Let's start with official suicides, uh, the suicides of officials. Okay, so um, you, lo you were looking at not just any old official, but senior. Right, so that's where I, because that's where I started. I originally wasn't going to do this broader story about suicides nationally, because I didn't know that story was there. Uh, and the reason is, uh, when I looked at suicides of officials, there's a lot of coverage that of suicides in China for the last few years that usually cite this boilerplate statistic that China has 22 or 23 suicides per 100,000 population and that this is one of the highest rates in the world. Well, that number, as I found out while looking into official suicides, is actually way out of date. And to go back a step here, so people look, they look at that number of 23 per 100,000, they say, well, a lot of officials would commit suicide anyways. There's 7 million civil servants. Mm -hmm. um, this was pointed out by a blogger you know, well, you know, so what does it matter that there are some officials committing suicide? You know, there'd be a lot anyways. We don't know whether there's any trend here or whatever. And we don't know, true, that there's any trend. There's no transparency. We don't get statistics on officials committing suicide. <laughs> All we can do is judge from published reports, like how many might be committing suicide 
And so what I thought to myself is, okay, yes, there are 7 million civil servants in China, but there's a much smaller number of high-level officials, a much more measurable number to sample to use, and, uh, and, and from which you would expect reports about their suicides to be more frequent. Let's say 40,000, but to be cons- really conservative, 50,000. And I, what I looked at was, okay, how many suicides in the, last, in the first six months of this year were of officials of that cohort? And um, when you say um, high-level officials, what city the, level and above, or the equivalent of city level? City a, level, yeah. So, uh, and below that, you're talking you, the next level down. You're talking about like nine hundred thousand. So the party secretary, uh, the mayor of a city, it, right? That, that but level. it also could be vice, uh, at vice that level, you know. Right. Um, so there's, and this also includes you know in government departments and stuff, the equivalent levels, right? So you're talking about fifty thousand across China, maybe actually less than that, but let's say fifty. Anyway, so. If, found five, at least five publicly reported suicides in the first six months of this year out of, let's say, 50,000, which would make for 10 for 100,000 in six months, or in other words, 20 in a year. Well, that's far higher. Okay, now if, you have, if your number is 22 per 100,000, then that's no big deal if, you're, if that's the national figure. So then I'm going and looking around for data on, well, what's China's national suicide rate? And uh, both official statistics, which have long been kind of somewhat unreliable, but scholars' uh, estimates based on manipulating that data, they all agree that there's been a massive decline in suicides in the last 20 years in China, and that now China has one of the lowest rates in the world. So th- I mean, that's pretty amazing. Let's just sort of right. highlight that. I think you have to go back and explain where the suicides were coming. Right. The so in the 90s, the, yeah. the story that everybody knew about, if they knew anything about China, rural China at all, was that they'd heard women in the countryside commit suicide. They swallow pesticides. They have desperate lives. And more women than men committed suicide in China. Right, which is the only country where the only country the in the case. world like that. And, you know, the ratio for, especially amongst young people, is, can be as much as in the West is four to one men to women. Whereas in, in China, it's, it was more women committing suicide than men, especially young rural women. Uh, which, their numbers were astronomical. Mm. Well, that's no longer the case. They, they, they had uh, the, the biggest decline of anybody in this group. Uh, I mean, when you look at the different groups of, um, of cohorts of, uh, you know, men, women, rural, urban, they've all declined. I mean, there have been a, some areas where there's been decline and then uptick and then whatever. But overall, the decline, there's been declines across the board. Uh, for rural women, much of it is credited to economic freedom, moving to the cities or having the ability to do so, earning m- money, sending money back home. I mean, the, the, by the way, when they move, you know, they measure suicides where they happen. So, but the fact is that they're moving to the cities to not raise the suicide urban rate, suicide right. rate. All suicide rates, and it's per 100,000 of those types of people in, you know, wherever, wherever they are. Um, so basically, women have more options. They have more, women options. Women have more options. They're divorcing. So you know, there's, there's fewer arranged marriages. They're, they have more economic options. Pesticides have become less toxic. That's a big fertilizers and pesticides have become less toxic. So they're across the board, you know. So in other words, uh, there was a higher completion rate of suicides mm. uh, previously because it was really easy. You just swallowed some pesticide and it killed you. Mm. Now it's not as certain to, to do that. Still, it's a st- extraordinary to have such a sociological change in such a short period of time. It's, and the, big, the biggest thing that's happened is that the society has gotten richer overall. Yeah. Um, even with relative disparity having grown, I think, yeah. between the countryside and the cities, overall, the, le- the living standard has risen for everyone. So it's the China dream. It's ever since Xi Jinping instigated this. It, it is China hard dream. to escape the fact that, in, <laughs> that uh, it's hard to escape the conclusion that probably people aren't 
quite as miserable as they used to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> except, except, except for senior government officials right yes. now who are committing right. So this is interesting. Rate. So, so now, what, what's happening So I looked there? at. So I looked at. So I tried to find not only the national suicide rate, which is down to under ten per one hundred thousand, but also the suicide rate amongst, let's say, forty to sixty-year-old men in cities, which is basically most of these officials, and that rate would be around seven, let's say, being conservative. Some act, it could be actually a little bit lower for some of the younger officials. Seven per 100,000. And what I just told you is that there's 20 of those types of officials per 100,000 if you were to extrapolate just from a very small sample, but we're dealing with small samples uh, from the first six months of this year. So they are dying in greater numbers, even just th- than would be statistically predicted. So they just e- don't want to face you even just with anti-corruption even, campaign, basically. They're just like, I'd well, no, actually, there's an, interesting, there's an interesting twist here. It's not just that uh, they might be depressed, and which they certainly are, I would say. They're, oh, by the way, the official explanation for almost every suicide yeah, is that, that they were de- depressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you get extra depressed and distressed when you're under, um, you know, when you're under um, a corruption investigation right. in China which is going to lead to a conviction and expulsion from the party and the end of your career. And the loss of your 100 mistresses. And, and the loss of your finances. So the, the interesting twist is that if you, and this was pointed out to me by a suicide expert who, when I asked him about this, but he didn't want to be quoted on it because he's like, I don't, you know, we can't know for sure, but that looks pretty telling. And that this is this, that there's a rule in the law, Chinese law, that if you're, that a corruption investigation ends when the suspect is deceased. Ah, uh, uh. And that means that so does the process of seizing their assets, uh, their family, going hmm. after their family, unless they decide to open a separate investigation. So your kid and your wife in Canada or where in yeah. Honan. You they, can take it with you, in other words. Right. They, well, your kid and the wife can take can it, take with, it them. with them. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. You, so uh, who knows whether that is really a factor here. They're also under lots of pressure, clearly psychological pressure. But if you know that um, your family is protected, if you commit suicide or if you suspect that that's going to be the case. Gotti, I've been citing a figure that I think I got from Jonathan Fenby's book. Okay. Uh, uh, just not with high-ranking officials, but with dollar billionaires. All right. Of which there are apparently 200 some in China. Right. Like one of the highest, maybe the U.S. number one. That's Russia 200 or, that we know of. 200 yeah. that we know of, yeah. yeah. And there's also a very high number of suicides uh, and also executions and assassinations among them. But, but suicide is also very high among them, right? And mm-hmm. I, w- I wondered how much of that will overlap with... It's just the same group of people we're looking at here, well, right? I doubt that the reasoning is the same. Uh, the, um, uh, I mean, there are some executives of, of SOEs that are, being, that are committing suicide. And some of them probably have quite a bit of Billion. money. Yeah. But they're not usually on the rich lists. Uh-huh. I mean, these officials never show up on, on rich lists. They might mm-hmm. be very rich. Was um, it in your article that said some of these uh, officials, the, the murder rate is... Uh, the death rate is as high as... A policeman. In other words, the statistic, statistic likelihood of being killed or dying was as high that as... That was the, not in my article. That was not in your article. Yeah. If it's not the Baijiu, it's the suicide. It's the suicide, yeah, right. Um. Okay. <laughs> uh, gentlemen. <laughs> so Hong Kong's fucked and the officials are killing themselves. Um, but, more, but, but more people in China are not killing themselves. But more people in China, young the, rural the, women... Uh, the uh, people uh, who uh, should uh, be hope. killing themselves are killing By themselves. By the way, the decline amongst young and rural women, I don't have the figures right in front of me, but it's like, it, it's like 90%. You know, that is some, pretty amazing it, because it's, it's a, it's I, a, I don't amazing think reduction. I've heard anybody talk about that. No, people still think did. people still think that uh, they think of China. Yeah. I, I know this because, you know, I mentioned the story idea people or friends do. 
uh, that I'm writing this and I was hearing back, oh, you mean like the young women, you know, young everybody women. kills someone themselves. in London yeah. was saying that, yeah. you know, it's like this, this is the stereotype. Right. And it's just no longer true. Well, I'm glad to see, even though you work for an establishment media organization, you are uh, challenging the prevailing narrative. Uh, well. <laughs> Watch your step. <laughs> Let's move on to recommendations. Um, I'll do mine really quickly. Uh, I'm not sure if it's been mentioned on the show before. It may have Howard French's uh, China's Second Continent how a million migrants are building a new empire in Africa. I'm a bit of a China-Africa fetishist of one kind or another. This is, I think, one of the best books uh, that's been written on the subject, and it's both, a, I think, a work of diligent journalism, but it's also a very good read with a lot of color in it. So that's my recommendation. Howard French, China's Second Continent. Agree wholeheartedly. That's a, a great book, and the most, one of the most important stories, arguably of the 21st century, globally. Uh, I'd like to recommend a book, relatively new, called Debating China, the U.S.-China Relationship in Ten Conversations. The editor is Nina Hashigian. Do you know this name? I know I'm not pronouncing her name right, probably. Hashigian or Hashigian. What these are are some written dialogues between the usual suspects, people like Ken Lieberthal right. and Barry Naughton and Susan Shirk and Wang Jisi and these kind of people. But the inter- what I liked about it and what sucked me into it was that they're not just uh, point-counterpoint dialogues. They are, f- they are point-counterpoint, counter-counterpoint, counter... In other words, they're, they're layered four... I think they're all four uh, sections where the, the second person replies, the Chinese representative replies, and then the American replies to that reply, and then the Chinese replies once again, depending on whoever starts. And the result, I think, is interesting because it's the same people talking about the same issues. But what happens is the dialogues become very focused on those sticking points that sometimes end up being talked past each other in, in, a, in a verbal debate or in just an ordinary newspaper sort of dialogue. And they're, they're quite good. There's uh, Barry Naughton on the economy. There's Susan Shirk talking about media. Uh, there's Ken Lieberthal and Wang Jisu talking about general chi- U.S.-China relationships. It's a, I think it's a good way to see these heavy hitters that you see probably too much of in a in a more interesting uh, light that forces them to to pr- to uh, be more precise in their language and to zero in on the issues that are really the sticking points. I found it very enlightening, very interesting. Great. I forgot about this reader recommendation portion of the podcast, so I, I didn't come fully prepared, but I. The, I'm in the middle of reading when I am procrastinating on my China work. The, the new, uh, and I, I hesitate to recommend it because I've just started reading it. But um, Kaiser does that all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I once bought a book on his recommendation of something I hadn't read, and it was appalling. But it so looks don't it, feel bad. It looks interesting <laughs> to me. I just uh, 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 the question is whether it's meaty, but is is a Newsweek cover story on Putin, on Putin or the, whatever it's called now? Is it? I think it's still called Newsweek. News Beast. Yeah, whatever. Week, IB <laughs> Times. <laughs> Mooney's. It uh, uh, it's just it's sort of explaining what how P- Putin lives his life and how he does uh, his day, and I, I think right now, given uh, MH17 uh, and everything going on with with Russia, it's interesting to look at the authoritarian next door. And I'm kind of he's he's a fascinating figure right now. He is very he popular is. in Russia. I mean, ridiculously <laughs> popular in Russia, but not not so much elsewhere. <laughs> can, can I can I ask you a, a question related to that? Do you think Xi Jinping has a man crush on Putin, or do you think Putin has a man crush on Xi Jinping? Hmm. I mean, who is the current authoritarian's authoritarian? Well, the real question is which 
which one thinks that they're in a better position, right, to last longer? Putin has the uh, Putin has the the democratic framework, the pretend democracy going. So it seems like it's more stable long long term to bet on, perhaps, right? Because when you when you just rig the elections, you have the elections, and you rig them, that can go on for a very long time. I think as long Tell- as the gas is flowing. <laughs> Yeah, the, there's going to be a man crush between the two of them. Yeah, Russia has economic, uh, yeah. maybe has economic challenges, severe economic challenges that China won't have. Uh, well, China will have economic challenges, but they're different. China um, maybe perhaps faces greater political challenges in right. some ways. Yeah. But I can't imagine Xi Jinping going shirtless, riding a horse. Uh, spare you know. us, spare <laughs> us. At least, uh, unless Peng Liuan sends him to the gym for a year or two. She might be a bit jealous of Putin's ability. It might, might be interesting to see her shirtless riding a horse. But I mean, yeah. it's a one man, it's a one man show in in Russia. You can he mm. can strut him, he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. Um, right. And it, of course, as powerful as she seems to be, he's not quite there. He yet. still plays within a system. Yeah. It's a it's a different game. Okay. On that note, thank you so much, Gadi. Good to see you again. Very good to be here again. Far too long. Thank you, David. Yeah, fun as always. And we'll see you next week on the Seneca Podcast. Mm